0: I'm Josh Porter, and this is the Van City Church Podcast. The following teaching is part 10 in our series, Exodus. In Exodus 34, God again discloses his name to a person and a people that had forgotten him. How does the God of miracles and wonders, the mighty God of the split sea, choose to describe himself when asked? Youth group was on Wednesday night. In fact, church itself was on a Wednesday-Sunday rotation. And I don't know if you guys know this, uh, but in the Southern Baptist tradition of my upbringing, you had church in the morning, just like this, worship, a sermon and everything, couple hours, then you came back to church at night for a second gathering, different worship, different sermon from the same guy, and then you would go home, yep. And on Sunday morning, you dressed up nice, Sunday evening, casual. You get to wear jeans, and, yep, that's exactly right. About half the amount of people there at night well, we were one of them because we were Christians. <laughs> Exodus chapter 34, what we are about to read is ground zero for our theology of God himself. And it is, get this, the most quoted passage in the Bible by the Bible meaning what's about to get said here in Exodus 34 will go on to be repeated again and again throughout the sprawling epic of the scriptures, more than any other echoed passage throughout the Bible. So would you stand with me as a gesture of reverence for these words that are breathed out by God himself? And let's read out loud altogether. It's going to be on some slides behind you. Exodus chapter 34. Behind me, sorry. Not behind you. Don't turn around. You'll be just fine. Behind me. Let's read Exodus 34 uh, verses 6 and 7. Who does God say he is? And he passed in front of Moses proclaiming, the Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness. Maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. Yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children and their children for the sin of the parents to the third and fourth generation. These words are inspired by God. Thank you, guys. Go ahead and take a seat. Every morning weekday mornings anyway, Monday to Thursday, I drive to work and most of the world is oblivious to my little comings and goings. I drive all the way down Columbia past the occasional morning cyclist who doesn't know me, nor I them. I stop at traffic lights and look at the back of someone's head. Maybe sometimes I wonder about them and where they're going and if they're sad. And most of the time, I don't really think about them that much at all. I turn left on McLaughlin Boulevard and I pass pedestrians walking little dogs and sipping coffee from white paper cups with black lids, a a pipe jutting from the side of an apartment building billowing white fog. And I don't really think about the 7.8 billion people all over the world celebrating and lamenting joy and pain, everything in between. I don't think about rain in the Amazon or saltwater crocodiles in India I don't think about colossal squids somewhere so deep in the ocean we can't find them. Instead, I think about things like my son's braces or the way my wife looked beautiful sleeping in the dark just before I left home or the raccoon I saw splattered on mill Plain. <laughs> But on Thursday of this week, it was a true story, I was thinking about those kinds of things when suddenly God's presence over all of those things occurred to me out of nowhere. That as I was driving, God was beholding both me and elephants making their evening stroll across the Serengeti. That God's mind was also on things like my son's braces, my sleeping wife, but also on swirling gas nebulas in space that he monitors whilst also considering the white vapor from the laundry exhaust on an apartment building in Vancouver. God is the unifying, the consistent thread over all things. Now, of course, we as you know, people can't agree on what this means, or if that's true at all. Atheists are mad at God, though they say they don't believe he exists. Agnostics are less convinced one way or another. The Buddha claimed no gods to speak of, but instead claimed to have found the escape hatch for all these frustrating cycles of reincarnation by achieving something called nirvana. Muhammad promised that one could return to God via heaven through good deeds laid out in the Quran or by way of shortcuts like jihad, which guarantees one's ticket. And if you're a man, you'll be accompanied to the afterlife by a throng of beautiful cosmic virgins intended for your personal pleasure who will, to quote the Quran, recline on green cushions and splendid carpets. Or Joseph Smith, who was the founder of Mormonism, also taught that virgins were to be given as gifts to righteous men who might enjoy eternal astro-romance when they became space gods in the afterlife, ruling their own planets, not unlike the space alien god Elohim from the planet Kolob, who rules over planet Earth and who was once, like us, the subject of another world under another god in the never-ending cycle of space gods and space gods-to-be. All these different religions and all these different gods or no gods or doubts about God, Buddhists and Mormons and Muslims and Jehovah's Witnesses and naturalists and atheists, all of them are looking for the something or the nothing behind the curtain of reality. And then... There are Christians who, like the others, are working to refine our understanding of who God is and who God isn't. But the Christian understanding of God is different. The Christian God is different. He is not accessible through nirvana. He is not Elohim or Kolob or Allah of the Quran. He is not dead or distant or fictitious. And the only reason we can know any of that and the only reason we believe any of that is that... God chose to make himself known to us. This we call, in theology, the doctrine of revelation. God didn't have to do that. He could have hidden himself from us. Some people believe he did. He could have made himself utterly incomprehensible to us, like a human to an ant, or he could have altogether deceived us for his own entertainment. But we don't believe he did that either. He chose to make himself known to us, and this is divine revelation. And theologians distinguish between two types of divine revelation. First, there's general revelation. C.S. Lewis argued that human beings have like a, an innate inborn longing for morality, for equity, and for justice. And when we see that that's not transpiring in the world, that bothers us. And that, he said, is God's self-disclosure in our actual wiring, in our DNA, the moral longing of our souls. There's also all this, the uh, universe, you know, volcanoes and seashells and platypus, sunsets, cloud formations, the, the incredible biological awe overflowing from the world around us. All of that is general revelation. It draws our hearts and our minds to the why behind all of this. But then there's special Revelation. The difference is that general revelation is, for the most part, available to all people and automatically. You just exist in the world and you can observe the universe itself. Special revelation, on the other hand, is revealed in the unique and specific work and word of God. The scriptures call special special revelation the word of God, which is a term that's used to describe Jesus. It's used to describe the Bible itself or God's speaking voice documented in the text, or to describe prophetic truths spoken by people on God's behalf. All of that is the Word of God. Within Christian orthodoxy, special revelation has primacy over general revelation. One is better than the other. The Bible is, in other words, a better way to know God than a sunset. Why? Because we are broken by our own sinfulness, Our minds, our person does, all conspire to corrupt the way that we comprehend God. Here's an immediate example to make it more personal about me. Like I said earlier, the greater part of my job is this, teaching Bible and theology. But when I get up here authoritative, like the Bible, and the funny thing is that I know that I can be wrong, but I have, to date, seven years in, never climbed up here on a Sunday night and said things that I already knew were wrong. I am doing the very best that I can, but I'm human, of course, so I must be wrong about something, sometimes. Now, I'm not saying that I'm throwing this together and I have no idea, you know, what's what. I actually worked very hard to bring the thinking of men and women much smarter and more educated than I am, together with centuries of wisdom under the guidance of the Spirit to present all of this responsibly to you on behalf of what I think the Spirit is leading and urging me to say to and for our church, and I do so prayerfully and hopefully with a lot of work and background. But even with all that... I'm not perfect, and that's why we have the Scriptures and the Holy Spirit and one another. Your own thinking and feeling, your interpretation of the world around you cannot, on their own, unlock specific divine truth. But God's unique and specific truth laid out in the delegated authority of the Scriptures with centuries of collected wisdom on how to read and interpret those scriptures within the accountability of community, not on your own in isolation, but with the collective mind of the church, that's different. In her book on doctrine, Dr. Beth Felker-Jones writes, even though God reveals himself to us in creation and our consciences, sin leads us to misinterpret this revelation and distort it into something false. With scripture as our guide, we can look to general revelation and begin to interpret it correctly. Even though the whole of creation testifies to God, yes, absolutely, without God's special revelation, we are unable to truly know Him. In order to know God, we will have to recognize the particular way He has revealed Himself in history. If you want to know the Christian God, you have to go through the text, the Scriptures, because God has revealed Himself to us without error in the scriptures. In the scriptures, who does God say that God is? The Lord, the Lord, or Yahweh, Yahweh, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. He does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children and their children for the sin of the parent to the third and fourth generation. When God explicitly describes his personhood, he does not begin, as we often do in the kind of Western Christian tradition, with the omnis. He does not tell Moses, the Lord, the Lord, omniscient, omnipotent, omnipresent. Those things are true of God. But when God describes himself, that's not where he begins. He doesn't even begin with things like the mighty God or the eternal God, meaning God does not begin with cosmic attributes. He begins with his character. Why? Turn one chapter to the left in your Bibles to Exodus 33 let's unpack the context into which God discloses his nature to Moses. Are you guys awake? You still with me? Great. Thank you so much. Wow, whistling and everything. That's super awake. Exodus 33, beginning with verse 7. Now Moses used to take a tent and pitch it outside the camp some distance away, calling it the tent of meeting. Anyone inquiring of the Lord would go to the tent of meeting outside of the camp. And whenever Moses went out to the tent, all the people rose, stood at the entrances to their tents, watching Moses until he entered the tent. As Moses went into the tent, the pillar of cloud, that's like God's presence, would come down and stay at the entrance. While the Lord spoke with Moses, whenever the people saw the pillar of cloud standing at the entrance of the tent, they all stood and worshiped, each at the entrance of their tent. The Lord would speak to Moses, listen to this, face to face, as one speaks to a friend. Then Moses would return to the camp But his young aide, Joshua, son of Nun, did not leave the tent. Moses said to the Lord, you've been telling me, lead these people, but you've not let me know whom you will send with me. You've said, I know you by name and you found favor with me. If you are pleased with me, teach me your ways. So I may know you and continue to find favor with you. Remember, this nation is your people. The Lord replied, my presence will go with you. And I will give you rest. Or another way of translating that line of, My presence will go with you and give you rest. Then Moses said to him, If your presence does not go with us, don't even send us up from here. How will anyone know that you're pleased with me and with your people unless you go with us? What else will distinguish me and your people from all the other people on the face of the earth? And the Lord says to Moses, I will do the very thing you have asked because I am pleased with you and I know you by name. And then Moses said, now, show me your glory. Now, in modern English, uh, glory mostly has to do with status. Uh, Glory is like fame, or glory is the credit due someone for some amazing thing, meaning he gets all the glory. But here, in ancient Hebrew, God's glory is his actual manifest presence. His glory is his beauty. His glory is his goodness. His glory is that cloud, that pillar of smoke and fire. That's his glory, where God is and how good he is, his presence, his proximity. So Moses says to God, show me who you are, meaning show me who you really are. God's response, of course. Look at verse 19. The Lord said, I will cause all my goodness to pass in front of you, and I will proclaim my name, the Lord in your presence. Now, this is kind of uh, easily lost on us modern readers, but something beautiful is happening in this exchange. Moses asks to see God's glory or his presence, and God is essentially saying, I will do even more. I will do you one better. I will show you my name. God wants to be known. He wants to be really known. Scholar Michael Knowles writes, In the world of the Hebrew Scriptures, a personal name was thought to indicate something essential about the bearer's identity, origin, birth circumstances, or the divine purpose the bearer intended to fulfill. Who is God? What's He like? What's He really like? Compassionate, gracious, Slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousand, forgiving wickedness, rebellion and sin, who doesn't leave the guilty unpunished. That is God's self-disclosure. What am I like? I'm compassionate. I'm gracious. I'm slow to anger. I abound in love and faithfulness. I forgive rebellion and sin. I punish evil, but there's more. That punish evil thing. We've read it a few times now, and I know some of y'all are like, well, that sounds pretty weird. And there it is. You can't argue with it. He does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children and their children for the sin of the parents to the third and fourth generation. That is intense. But please stay with me on this. Watch this. There's something really beautiful and incredible happening here that can get obscured by our English translations. Now, the word generation isn't actually there in the original text, literally in Hebrew, it's, he punishes the children and their children for the sin of the parents to the third and fourth, the end. Now, in Hebrew, this is actually a poetic stanza. There's an intended symmetry between the opening line and the concluding line. God maintains love to thousands, and he punishes the children and their children for the sin of the parents to the third and the fourth. Here's why that's important. Scholars argue that it's important to translate both lines in such a way that the consistency or to to depict that consistently in English and forgiving wickedness rebellion of the parents to the third and fourth generation about sin. No. Does he punish evil? He does. It says so right here. God's fiery justice against evil punishes to the third and fourth generation. His mercy... On the other hand, his love and his forgiveness extends out to thousands of generations. Now it's not literal math, it's a word picture. The image is kind of like a scale. On one side, you have three or four weights and on the other side of the scale, thousands of weights. That is the image that God is creating with this beautiful picture. God is the all-powerful cosmic judge who comes to destroy evil and punish sin. He does this for us, for the good of human flourishing and justice and the renewal of all things. But even so, God is, by nature, abounding in love and faithfulness. He's slow to anger. He's compassionate and gracious. His innate merciful compassion and grace exceed his innate disciplinary justice a thousand times, and that is just who he is. It's not a put on. He doesn't have to remind himself to be that way. That is just God's character, meaning even God's justice against evil is a condition of his loving goodness, and it pales in comparison to his mercy. So even this piece of text that reads to us as like, whoa, archaic and intense sounding, was and is intended to contrast God's generous, patient, abounding love against his justice. Now, Exodus is, as we've said it again and again throughout the series, a story about God, And about humanity, it's about a God who blesses and creates, and it's about an evil oppressor who rises up to thwart God's blessing and enslave his beloved, and it's about the lengths to which God will go to rescue them. Yahweh is the God who hears the cries of the oppressed. He seeks and finds a broken man, Moses, and he uses him to do incredible things. He is patient, even with the oppressor, pleading with Egypt to repent. And then we, the reader, can see ourselves in the oppressed, Israel, and we can see ourselves in the oppressor, Egypt, and we can behold God's loving patience toward them both across this beautiful, incredible epic. God rescues his people with miracles and wonders and uses those to provide patience and opportunity to the evildoers. He provides Israel Uh, with food and shelter in the desert. He leads them into a new way of life. He nurtures them and cares for them, even though Israel had, at the outset of the story, forgotten Yahweh. They forgot his name. They forgot who he was. And throughout the story, Israel consistently balks at God's goodness. They doubt Moses when he shows up with the whole liberation plan. They complain throughout God's work to rescue them, and they complain about having been rescued. Just before this scene that we read tonight of God disclosing his character to Moses, his name to Moses, Israel had turned its back on Yahweh and began worshiping a golden calf that they made for themselves. And this is, by the way, the first thing God specifically forbade them from doing when he gave Moses the law. Worship no other gods but me. Got it, cow. And then it's right right away like that. And after all that, when God's Wonder and majesty and glory are revealed to Moses for the sake of Israel. And Moses says, who are you really? God does not say, I am the righteous God who burns against evil and enjoy. I will destroy. I'm, ang- I'm retributive. None of that. He says, I am good. I am very, very good. I am, God says, by my nature, abounding in love and faithfulness. I am slow to anger. For more on this, just go back and read the whole story. I am compassionate, I'm gracious, and my innate merciful compassion and grace exceed my innate disciplinary justice a thousand times. This is a story about God and people, a story about God and us, really. So, stop there for a second. Do me a favor. Close your eyes if you're up for it. This will only take a second. Close your eyes. Take a deep breath. I'm going to say three words. Take note of what comes into mind when I say them. God the Father. Go ahead and open your eyes. A.W. Tozer argued that what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. Worship is pure or base as the worshiper entertains high or low thoughts of God. For this reason, the gravest question before the church is always God himself, and the most portentous fact about any man or woman is not what he or she at a given time may say or do, but what he or she in their deep hearts conceive God to be like. We tend by a secret law of the soul to move toward our mental image of God. This is true not only of the individual Christian, but of the company of Christians that composes the church. Always the most revealing thing about the church is her idea of God, just as her most significant message is what she says about him or leaves unsaid, for her silence is often more eloquent than her speech. Exodus is a story, in many ways the story, our story. A story that ultimately comes to fulfillment across the epic of the scriptures. And a man called Jesus of Nazareth, who the story reveals, is himself God. Of himself, and the glorious God revealed in Exodus 34, Jesus of Nazareth said this. I, Jesus says, am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you really know me, you will know my Father as well. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Anyone who see, has seen me has seen the Father. The words I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority. Rather, it is the Father living in me who is doing his work. If you love me, Jesus says, keep my commands. I will ask the Father. He will give you another advocate to help you and be with you forever, the spirit of truth. We talked about that last week. If you missed it, go catch up on the podcast. The world cannot accept the spirit of truth because it neither sees him nor knows him, but you know him for he lives with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Before long, the world will not see me anymore, but you will see me because I live, you also will live. And on that day, you will realize that I am in my father and you are in me and I am in you. Whoever has my commands and keeps them is the one who loves me. The one who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I too will love them and show myself to them. The ultimate, truest, most accurate revelation of the only Creator God who is abounding in love and faithfulness, the one who's compassionate and gracious and slow to anger, is the man called Jesus of Nazareth. The author of Hebrews put it this way. In the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets many times, various ways. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, Jesus, whom he appointed heir of all things and through him also he made the universe. The son is the radiance of God's glory, that language from Exodus. And listen to this, the exact representation of his being. Sustaining all things by his powerful word, after he had provided purifications for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. Jesus is the compassionate, gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands, forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin, but who takes like look at Jesus. Came into this sanctuary in the afternoon to pray. My office is actually just at a desk or shake away the occasional brain fog. And um, I sat just over there in those pews, the only person in here, and uh, I read from the scriptures and I listened to the Spirit and I prayed and I journaled and thought about how easy it is to operate on autopilot because uh, like you guys, I have stuff going on. My stuff isn't any more important than yours, but there it is. I've got my kids and my family and this job And these other projects with which I busy myself and time itself often becomes a blurry smear across my memory in which even though my job is teaching the Bible and even though I often sit in this empty sanctuary and pray, I can look back across the timeline of a day or a week or a month or two months and God's presence and character seem for some reason distant or abstract. And sitting here... In this pew on Thursday afternoon, I suddenly thought of Psalm 14. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. And I thought, "What? Well, that's weird. <laughs> Why did that suddenly pop into my head? And, and I wondered, did I think of this line of all Bible verses? Because I, at times, can live as a functional atheist, oblivious to God's omnipresence. Ears stopped up by distraction to the voice of the Spirit in my life. I drive myself to work, my mind wandering the halls of distraction, thinking about my wife sleeping or my son's braces, about good things, meaningful things to me and to God, but my mind drifts from the one who holds it all together. The same God who knows my son in his braces, and also knows the number of teeth in the jaws of every saltwater crocodile in West Bengal. I am not the warm, cozy heartbeat at the center of the universe, but I am known by the one who is. In my line of work, faking it could be very easy. Typically, one way or another, the Sunday gathering is almost always coming. It's been canceled like one time because of a plumbing emergency (laughs) back at Compass Church, if you were here for that. That was quite a Sunday. But it's always coming, and at most of these Sunday gatherings, I'm up here talking about the Bible and theology and God. If I'm not on vacation like two weeks out of the year, whatever it is, I'm in my office throughout the week reading, writing, reading the scriptures, theology, trying to learn about God and trying to distill that down into something that's meaningful for our church, and God can become conceptual rather than personal, a mascot, a professional obligation because Sunday's always coming. For hundreds of Sundays now, I've been up here talking about God, and yet my attention can drift. My allegiances can slip. A few minutes ago, when you closed your eyes and you thought of God, what did you see? The compassionate God, who's slow to anger, but who deals seriously with evil and injustice, or something else, an entirely angry, short-tempered, retributive God, or maybe a, a lazy, permissive God who would never ask you to do anything you don't want to do, where there are gaps in our knowledge of God, we can resolve some of them, a lot of them maybe, by learning, Sure. We can untangle a bad theology of God in study and reading or through sermons and podcasts, all that stuff, yes. We can work out what's right about God in community dialogue, absolutely. And we should. But we can only truly know God by His presence and by time spent. My wife Abby and I live in the same house. And... uh, (laughs) And even so, after more than 15 years of living together now, we've learned how possible, how likely it is that without routine points of deliberate connection and intimacy, we can and will drift from one another. God is often like that ever-present roommate, close but somehow far away. And knowing this, disciples of Jesus have designed practices based on the lifestyle of Jesus to combat that drift. One of them is something that uh, we've practiced on and off as a church over the last few years called the prayer of examine, or sometimes called the examination of consciousness. The practice kind of goes like this. You find a quiet place, and you allocate a a quiet few minutes. You relax. You take a, a few deep breaths. You slow down. You ask the Holy Spirit to guide your thinking and imagination, something along the lines of, Spirit of Jesus, open my heart and mind to what you have to say to me through this time of prayer and reflection. And then... You do your best to replay the day in your mind. You scan the archives of your mind and you examine the last 24 hours or so of your life, and you go through the major blocks of your day. And then as you play the day, you find some moment, however simple or brief, when it seemed as if God was close or closer than other moments anyway. The kindness of someone you love, a smile on someone's face, a beautiful work of art, a memory, a fun moment, whatever. Next, you name the strongest feelings you had experienced across that day. And in that film reel of the last 24 hours, you ask yourself, when were your emotions strongest? Did you lose your temper? Were you filled with affection for someone? Were you sad or worried or afraid? When you've recalled the strongest moments of emotion, you ask yourself, why did I feel so strongly then? Does this... Strong reaction, reveal my faith in God or my lack of faith in God. And then as you replay the day and you think about those emotions and the moments of God's closeness or his distance and those strong emotions and how you reacted, all of that, you share that with Jesus. Be honest with Jesus about what caused strong responses in you, and you try to name accurately which particular feeling it was that you felt, and you ask Jesus whether he ever felt the same things or, or, or the way that you felt them And when he lived and moved and had his earthly life amongst us. And if a scripture comes to mind that evidences this, Jesus getting angry, Jesus being sad, Jesus filled with warmth or affection, you, you open your Bible and you read and you, you ask Jesus' effective response You ask of it, was it like yours? Was it different than yours? How can you close that gap? And then you finally just thank God for being present to you in this practice. And if necessary, you repent of any sin or worship. You resolve to live differently, more like Jesus across the span of the next 24 hours. Essentially, just spending time reflecting on the last day with God. I've been waiting until now to read the final verse in tonight's text. After all he'd been through in his life, when Moses stood before God and heard for himself the character of God, echo out across the mountain, the words that would become the most quoted passage in the Bible by the Bible, still studied and quoted and preached thousands of years later on the other side of the world, after Moses had killed a man and attempted to cover it up, after he pleaded with God, "Find someone else for your rescue mission." After Israel doubted and despaired and complained, after they'd spurned God's gift of freedom, after they'd betrayed God and turned to golden idols right after He asked them not to do that spit in the face of the God who delivered them from the oppressor, God looks upon Moses the broken man, in Israel, a broken people, and says, do you want to know who I am? I am Yahweh. I am the one and only compassionate, gracious God. In light of everything you've done and everyone that you have been, abounding in love and faithfulness, living wickedness, rebellion, and sin, that I do not leave the guilty unpunished. I punish the child. And then, after all that, we read in verse 8, The appropriate response that is Yahweh God is worship. Who, like Moses, did a terrible thing and hid it, or someone who asked God to seek someone else, or someone who complained and grumbled against God even when he was trying to set you free someone who turned to other people and things to satisfy the longing of your heart that God had pledged to fulfill. You've probably been someone who's blown it and you've lost track. You've slipped. You've become distracted. And yet, God is still who he said he was and is and will forever be, compassionate, gracious, slow to anger, a in love and faithfulness. It makes sense to say thank you. And it is appropriate to say that over the story of my broken life, this is very good news, to draw near to the God who draws near to us and to worship Him. Would you guys stand with me as we prepare to do exactly that? Thanks for listening to Vance City. You can connect with us and find more teachings and available resources at www.vancity.church. You can support Vance City financially at vancity.church/give.